Welcome to the Control the Room podcast, a series devoted to the exploration of meeting culture and uncovering cures to the common meeting. Some meetings have tight control and others are loose. To control the room means achieving outcomes while striking a balance between imposing and removing structure, asserting and distributing power, leaning in and leaning out, all in the service of having a truly magical meeting. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join us live for a session sometime, you can join our weekly Control the Room Facilitation Lab. It's a free event to meet fellow facilitators and explore new techniques so you can apply the things you learn in the podcast in real time with other facilitators. Sign up today at voltagecontrol.com facilitation lab. If you'd like to learn more about my book, Magical Meetings, you can download the Magical Meetings Quick Start Guide, a free PDF reference with some of the most important pieces of advice from the book. Download a copy today at magicalmeetings.com. Today, I'm with Shannon Varco, the VP of Facilitation Programming at Voltage Control, where she designs and supports enterprise-scale programmatic change offerings. Welcome to the show, Shannon. Thanks for having me, Douglas. Happy to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. Well, as usual, let's get started with a little bit about how you got started in this work. How did you get into planning and developing big programmatic offerings for cohort leadership? Yeah, it is definitely one of those paths where when you look back, the dots start to connect a bit more. So I think, you know, my first first ways into facilitation and program design probably go back, you know, very far into childhood, but I think worth starting at even high school. I was really involved in theater in high school, was super involved on the stage crew in particular and stage management and scene design and and those kinds of things. And uh, there's always a joke in my family that we say just the world needs more stage managers. And so I think that was very formative for me in terms of becoming a leader and a facilitator of, you know, putting a show together and leading folks through that experience. And then when I went to college, I uh, majored in mechanical engineering and product design, and then also found my way into an entrepreneurship minor. So kind of always wanting to be this jack of all trades person. And so I think that has definitely been, you know, a factor in, in the growth into my career wanting to, you know, create experiences, but also craft them in interesting ways. And I think even that technical side of the engineering and the process also has an influence. And so uh, all of those things kind of, you know, kicking me into my career path of becoming a a toy inventor when I graduated school uh, in a master's program in engineering to designing entrepreneurship programs for university uh, for students and Uh, Then, you know, finding my way into uh, leadership facilitation and design and bringing design thinking to leadership development organizations, to a nonprofit and, you know, creating and facilitating long term programs for their community to, uh, you know, really developing, I would say, especially with the pandemic, getting really into the virtual facilitation world uh, and bringing a lot of the skill sets that I've kind of been developing and growing over my life to voltage control now. So really excited to kind of see that path come to this new role. Awesome. And such a diverse tapestry. It'd be fun to dive into some of that before we get into some of the more topical components of kind of facilitation and programming and kind of the cohort-based leadership development concepts. And, you know, one of the things that came to mind when I was hearing all of that was something I've read recently around 
the power of um, exploration. And when uh, yeah. people were studying hot streaks, when people have hot streaks and they're they're having re- these really kind of powerful moments in their career, it followed a, a moment of lots of exploration. Mm. It seems like your story is kind of, I would say, it contains a lot of stuff. Like you've done a lot of exploration. A lot of stuff, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I feel like even as I try to condense that story into, you know, a shorter <laughs> intro, it's, uh, you know, you're also thinking about all the things you're leaving out in that story at the same time, too. So I think definitely um, a book that comes to mind for me uh, is the book Range, because I think that was very helpful for me to also read and, and understand that, you know, having range and having interest in a lot of areas, but also, as you say, exploration into a lot of areas. I found that it's a really a, a strong suit for whatever it is that I'm you know spending my time working on, because I can pull from experiences that I've had or, you know, this makes me think of this and I can connect it to this and kind of pulling things together from many different places uh, and spaces of things I've learned or done um, that inform the ideas that I have or the work that I do. You know, I've noticed that when we've collaborated before, we'll be kind of riffing on some ideas and and just some of the angles where the inspiration's coming from is really fascinating, you know, <laughs> to hear how some of the stuff's getting stitched together. And I wonder how much does that impact the way you think about organizing programs or are the programs creating opportunities for the participants in the program to experience some of those connections or find some of their connections of their own? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, when you're developing a program or, you know, that people are going through something longer term, whether it's you know, if we think about a program that's three months or six months or even a year or longer, you know, what what's happening over time for them and what are they having the chance to explore? And, and as a designer of those programs, what things do you want them to explore, whether they maybe, let's say, feel like they make sense at the time, but that the, the pieces, again, kind of fit together as you go through an experience um, in a program that you can think back on something that happened and it can inform an idea or, you know, the next step that you're taking and maybe you don't realize that when you're going through it the first time, but it starts to build on it on itself over time. And I think that can be really magical when people can say, oh, we went to that thing or we talked about this, you know, three months ago. And I remember that now and it can, you know, add to the creativity that's happening in this new space that's, you know, unfolding throughout a program. Yeah, that makes me think, too, how sometimes experiences are overprogrammed, meaning there's like too many things happening. I see that a lot with new facilitators. You know, you look at their agenda and it's just full of too many things. And the book, The Power of Moments, Mm. where they were sharing some research from Disney and they were talking about, you know, people really only remember how things started, how things ended in a key moment. And uh, so, I don't know, as you were talking, it just struck me as like, if we're designing in these really um, special moments, are we giving people enough time to reflect and appreciate those moments? Or are we just throwing more and more and more moments at them? Yeah, I love that. And it's so true because I think as designers, we're also like, we want to do it all. And like, let's put it all into an hour. And it's, you know, I think slowing down and, and finding simplicity in your design is also really you know crucial. And I think so much of that also can you know, design in and of itself, whether it's, I think we can find, you know, ways that that's happening in products that we use or things that simplicity of design uh, can be a choice and an element often. But I think, yeah, what you're also saying, it reminds me of a time, you know, early into learning how to facilitate meetings or, you know, really truly be a facilitator that I found a, a thing I was always working on was giving people enough time to do a thing. So you would sort of, you know, invite them to do something and I would 
just get excited to move to the next thing and give them like five seconds to think about it. And it took a little bit for me to be like, oh, I need to let them think for more, more than, you know, they're only hearing this for the first time. I got to give them some time to, to think and reflect on it or work together on it. Um, and that, you know, then we can move to the next thing, uh, that we're doing in that, in that agenda, uh, a little bit further, you know, further along. And so I remember learning that the hard way at times, um, where people are like, Hey, we need some more time seriously, uh, before we move on to this. But, you know, it's always a learning process and how you bring people through an experience, but yeah, giving them time for those moments is so, so crucial. And I think that's also exacerbated by this phenomenon where as a new facilitator, it can be so scary to have such a giant void of silence mm-hmm. Yeah. where, you know, it just feels like really awkward. You know, it's like, wait, shouldn't something be happening? <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, I think people have to get comfortable with that. And it takes practice and confidence. Yeah, definitely confidence and, and practice. You're right. I think. And even, you know, we talk a little bit about uh, play being, you know, a very big thread throughout my life as well. And I think even allowing yourself to play with that awkward silence, like to me, that's an opportunity. I think of it that way now is that when there's that awkward silence, it's like, okay, uh, it reminds me of the the quiet game when you're a kid. It's like, who can last the longest? And so it's like, okay, I'm the facilitator. I have to last, last longer and be more able to be comfortable with this than you know, the people that I'm working with. And so I almost turn it into a little game in my head where it's like, okay, can I outlast, you know, the group until somebody else speaks? And so that also, like, turning that into a little game for me helps me not fill the space, but instead give room for somebody to be open to sharing. And so always kind of finding those little moments for, you know, games or play, whether people know you're doing it or not. um, Sometimes they're just helpful tactics as the facilitator too. Yeah, and it, this is making me think also just around the intentionality of developing longer programmatic arcs and the transformation that can happen because you know, if we give time for asynchronous processing between some punctuations we're making with the cohort or with the team, then they have a lot more time to sit with it, to try stuff in different settings and then come back. And, you know, I think the virtual world has made some of those things much more possible mm. because when everyone expected to have the expert or coach flown in or you were in another city so the idea of you coming and and being with them for three months is kind of less likely but now it's it, you know this has really opened up quite a possibility from the design aspect of being with people um, and creating these asynchronous moments so they can have more time to reflect integrate and grow. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think the opportunity to embed with a team and, you know, and and really be kind of come alongside of people is usually how I'll talk about it is being able to say, you know, we're not just coming here for, you know, one day or two days and then good luck. It's also how do we kind of keep connecting and, and giving you those moments to reflect because Sometimes it doesn't happen right away, but you have to, and you learn when you are like, hey, I learned that thing and now I'm going to try it in this meeting that I'm hosting or I'm going to, you know, or I see something and it reminds me of a thing that I learned in, you know, a workshop that I did, but now I can apply this in in a different way or, or test it and try it out. And those are really great moments. But then it's when we can also say, okay, now we're actually going to debrief those things that you learned and you did and you tried since the last engagement that you know, really solidify that learning a little bit further. And so then you add, you know, month over month or, or even year over year, how does that learning change and grow? 
um, with each individual as well as each team um, as they're, you know, kind of exploring this new, whether it's leadership development or they're becoming better facilitators, whatever that might be. Um, but you're getting to kind of see that happen and evolve over longer periods of time. And I think you're right that virtual really allows that to happen in a, in a really special and different way, too. You know, it, it reminds me of seeing a TikTok video on a dance move mm. and then being like, oh, I got this. And then you go try it and it's a disaster. And then you got to watch it again. And you got to try it and be like, wait, 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 hold on. And then watch the first five seconds of it and then try that, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so you have it, you had this feedback loop of like, trying it, getting the feedback and then correcting, wait, hold on. What was that placement versus that placement? Mm -hmm. And until you're in the zone of doing it and failing and getting confused and then having real questions about the situation, can you really make your way through it? And I think that's really how these longer arcs can benefit people. Yeah. And even through that example too, it's also being like, you know, Hey, this friend, help me figure out this step or, you know, what you, you're a better dancer, like help us figure this one out, you know? And so it's also bringing other people into that process or, uh, you know, I think it's a, it's a fun and funny example for sure, but I think it definitely aligns with some of those, those processes. I mean, learning anything, right. It can be like that. Um, but it's, you know, especially over a period of time. And then it's also month over month, that thing goes viral and you're seeing it 50 times and you're like, okay, I can definitely do this now. Um, and so I think all of that is, you know, how we can think about creating programs that really allow you to, you know, see material in different ways, explore it with different people in different ways, but then also kind of let it evolve in your own individual learning over time too. And so when, when we're working with clients, you know, they're probably not trying to learn dance moves. But it kind of served as a fun example. But at the same time, I think it is important to point out the the relevance of play and joy and how much that can shift perspectives and open new thinking. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on why is that so important? Yeah, so play is absolutely crucial. I think play is crucial for develop, you know, if we go back to development in children, right, we think of play, so many people when we think of play, think of kids and toys and Yes, that absolutely is play. And I think in my background to being a, a toy designer and, and coming up with my own you know, toy product and, and learning more about how to actually design and create play through a product uh, also really informed how I think about designing and creating play in an experience, whether it's you know a service or a workshop or a long-term program, that the importance of exploration, as we talked about before, and trying things, but also you know, how do, what does it do to your brain to be able to, to play with something and have, you know, have fun and excitement, but also it's really about, again, we always keep coming back to learning, but it's learning through a different, you know, modality in a way when you play. So I think for adults, we've kind of lost that a lot of us. Um, and I think especially with remote too, we've sort of lost the chance for that, those moments of play. And, and it is really important to, you know, expand, the way that you think about creativity and curiosity and movement and, and like lighting up those parts of your brain through play. You know, I recently heard a Stanford professor, and I apologize for not remembering his name. We'll get that in the, the show notes, but he has a really amazing video. And one of the points he made in the video was that play was homeostatically controlled. Hmm much like thirst, right? Mm-hmm. If you haven't had water in a while, you get very thirsty. But if you're plenty hydrated, you don't notice thirst, right? The brain kind of controls 
have you had enough water? Are you hydrated enough? And play is also homeostatically controlled, which is fascinating because I think so much of the world, the workforce views play as this secondary need or this like extra thing that we just like have invented to entertain ourselves when it's actually a biological need. Mm-hmm. And if we're not giving it to ourselves, we we have a very like biological requirement for it. Yeah, I think it's it's absolutely true. And I think there's also really interesting things that happen with adults when it comes to play of of why don't we, right? What's in the way of that is also really interesting to me too. When, when all those things that you're saying are true, right? If it's as needed and, you know, in our lives, why aren't we doing it? What is it? And I think from what I've found and, you know, in, in facilitation, what holds people back from, you know, we think of play, I think when we think of as facilitators, often we'll think of the icebreaker or the, the, you know, the stoke activity or something like that. But I find it to be so much more about ingraining it into all of it. And it's more of a mindset of, um, you know, a mindset for play or a, a posture for play, I'll often say to you. And, and what gets in the way of that for people? And, and so much is, I think, it's vulnerability. Play is vulnerability in a big way. And vulnerability is super connected to shame as well. And so I think, you know, you think of that TikTok dance example and it's like, oh, I would absolutely not want to do that because that I'm going to embarrass myself big time. I'm going to. And then what is embarrassing myself? Risk, right? Risk people not taking me seriously, not wanting to work with me, you know, whatever those like things that we can create in our brains and those stories that we can tell ourselves in our brains about what's going to go horribly wrong if I'm vulnerable and in, in play in this way. And I think kids don't do that. And, and until they start to learn about, you know, like it takes a, it's, it's longer in their lives until they start to have those things set in. And so they're much more willing to have a posture for play than adults do. And we're like, oh, I'm, you know, I don't want to be seen as, you know, not serious. And that, you know, prevents people from playing. And so it's how do we allow opportunities and create spaces for people to play that feel, you know, safe and able to kind of flex into that without those fears happening. But then also, how do we say, hey, what are those fears? Can we talk about them? Are they actually real fears um, that are going to play out in the way that you might think that they're going to? And how can we create, you know, opportunities for you to let go of those, those fears to be able to, you know, reap the benefits of play in a space or in a collaboration with others? Yeah, it's so amazing how the quest for correctness has done a number on all of our psyches because I think being embarrassed or not being correct instills so much fear Mm -hmm. because so much of our education system is about having the right answer and being correct. And that creates so much fear of being wrong or being shamed. Yeah. And definitely, you know, one thing to 100% watch out for is if teams are shaming each other. Even if there's a dynamic or just playful ridicule, it is so much more insidious than it might seem. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, right, I think it comes down to, there's a very big difference between laughing with each other and laughing at each other. And I think that, you know, it simplifies it a lot, but I think in in some ways that that's definitely a sign. Um, and, And also finding like, what are you, you know, what are you bringing to that too? Are you laughing with or laughing at, you know, and I think that's an important thing to also have awareness of. Um, on a team is, you know, how are you also creating 
the opportunity for others to play and try. And again, and we, and it's not always about dancing, right? But it's also about, you know, sharing an idea and creating, you know, the opportunity for someone to share a wild and crazy idea that seems maybe a little out of this world that can be playful. And if that idea is immediately shot down, well, the next time they're not going to say that, you know, and they're not going to go there. And, and then we, that's where I think play and innovation and creativity are so tied is it's not just about, and it goes back to, it's not just about that icebreaker. It's not just about that dance move, but it's also allowing people to be playful with their creativity, their ideas, the way they communicate, the way that they present something. And when we have room for that, it allows for those new and innovative things to exist. But if we're, you know, shooting them down left and right, because it's playful, then we're really missing out on, on what those those opportunities might be. Yeah, and there's any number of reasons why things might be shot down, not mm-hmm. just play, sure. right? And also, if people are, are feeling ridiculed or shamed, they're not going to share. They're not going to be forthright with their ideas. That is the pinnacle of not being psychologically safe. Mm-hmm. And what I love about all this kind of talk around play is that play can be a gateway to better psychological safety. Without having to have this very controlled, very mechanical, like, oh, we're going to we're going to manufacture some psychological safety Mm, because, you know, I don't know how well that works. You know, just training people on psychological safety, what it means and go, okay, go back and do better. Whereas, Mm -hmm. like, I feel like encouraging play and facilitating these moments gives people a license and agency to be more safe and to create these environments of safety, which then they can perpetuate. Yeah, absolutely. And I think some of the most interesting things with play are, you know, that play is also a chance for us to try things on and try things in different ways. And, um, you know, role play is a thing or, you know, storytelling play. Like there's so many different versions of play where sometimes it's easier for people to enter into playful experiences that inform than the work later or, you know, or I think as, as you're saying, you know, kind of if we can enter into a playful and psychologically safe experience, we can keep that. We know what that feels like now. We know what that looks like now. And we can, you know, kind of enter back into that time and time again through, you know, the ways that we did it when we first learned how to through play. So you've designed a lot of things in your career and quite often there's been an experience involved of some sort. There's been toys there's been all sorts of things. So I'm really curious, mm-hmm. what's the thing that um, you're most proud of? Or what's like, is your favorite design? Ooh, I don't know. I can't pick a favorite. I mean, I think there's, there's definitely a spot in my heart for my first, you know, toy that was, I always kind of joke in a way that's like, oh, it's my first, first startup in a way, because I learned so much, so many hard ways. Um, and so that product, it's called Zix Sticks, spelled Z-Y-X Sticks. And it was just a huge learning process and, you know, came out of a, a design course in my product design, you know, coursework that was not supposed to be a toy in the first place. And, you know, kind of came out of that design class and critique environment and then became this thing that just evolved into a business, which was just a wild experience start to finish. Um, but I will say like some of my favorite, you know, other things I've designed in terms of products. I worked with a company called Created with Love uh, that does date night subscription boxes for couples um, and, you know, really are silly and fun and just are all about kind of creating opportunities for people to connect and and laugh and play together. Um, And so those were, you know, 
that was definitely more of a pressure cooker of creativity because we were coming up with new themes and new games and new activities every single month and do kind of did these like sprints of designing the full experience of the box, but then also what all the individual, like inventing new games every, you know, two weeks for some of these boxes to come to life. And so those were definitely, there's some really silly, fun themes that we leaned into that I'm very proud of that came out of that, that work too. You know, I've been following one of the writers for The Simpsons, Hmm. and I've been really enjoying his stories because he's been sharing these like little vignettes about what it was like being in the writing crew for The Simpsons. Mm -hmm. There's so many great, cool anecdotes of what it was like being back there. And um, I mean, when you were talking about the pressure cooker, it kind of reminded me of that. I was like, you know, being around a lot of creatives coming up with a lot of crazy stuff. It's like, yeah, it's like, there's nothing better. I mean, for me, I think that's a piece that I really love about this work. And I, and is is now something that I really look for in, in a, in a team and, and joining a new team and finding people that you just connect on, you know, and connect with where you can just have that back and forth. That's, you know, quick and sappy and you're building off ideas of others. And um, no matter what you're, you're talking about or creating, to me, that is the most fun, you know, those are the most fun environments. And I think so much of the work that I'm excited about too for Voltage Control is creating those environments for others because they've just been so, you know, impactful in my life of opportunities to collaborate and be creative with other people and, uh, you know, ways that we can bring that to to work more uh, is is just a huge passion area of mine because it's it's magic. It's just so fun. I couldn't agree more, you know. I want to shift a little bit here and talk about this kind of in-person to virtual shift that happened. And, you know, especially as someone who made toys, I mean, you talked about the date night, you know, those boxes could be shipped to people Mm -hmm. and they could share that together as two people. So certainly we've seen subscription services or even just mailing stuff to participants. But what other shifts or what things have you noticed in this kind of transition from kind of moving into the virtual space? Yeah, I think that any time that there's a shift or a change, you know, whether it's, we didn't talk about this so much, but also design thinking has been incredibly crucial as a thread throughout, you know, my life. And, you know, I learned about it probably first in, who knows, like middle school or high school, early high school. And so it was, you know, just a framework that I feel like I've always just now kind of thought through. And so I think that to me, connects very much with this topic of seeing problems as opportunities is a big piece of design thinking. And so I always looked at, okay, this whole virtual world and and what's happening and what's changing and it's evolving so quickly and so many things are being thrown at us in in different ways um, in the past few years. And I always just saw it as an opportunity to, to rethink things, shake things up. And it was, you know, okay, it's not about how do we do the thing that we used to do that worked and just make it virtual. It's okay, throw it all up on, you know, all up on the board and let's figure out what is actually going on here and what can we do now. Um, it's not about just taking, you know, in-person A and making it virtual A. It's, you know, how do we totally redesign this and and see what what we can do with the tools that we now have um, and, the, and the constraints that we now have. I think uh, a very, you know, common motto or phrase is that creativity loves constraints. And I think that's something that I really agree with and and find so true. And I think that the constraints that have been, uh, you know, put upon us through the last few years and with the pandemic 
are an opportunity for creativity because there are so many interesting constraints. So yeah, those are some, some interesting things that happen there. I'm a huge fan of constraints as well. In fact, you know, I always give the example of the more we can scope down, the better. Because if you ask a group, how do we solve world hunger? You're going to get a bunch of blank stares back. But if you say, how do we get bread to this family across town? You know, they'll probably figure that out, right? And so how do we get it to a point that's manageable? Yeah, a similar um, version of that question that I'll often, you know, say if I'm talking to a group about creativity is, okay, everybody, you know, name, name 10 things in the world. You've got 10 seconds, name 10 things in the world. And like, you know, quick, get out a piece of paper. And maybe the people who are listening, right? It's like, name 10 things in the world, write them down. Okay, like, do you have them? All right, probably not. You've got three, four, maybe. Okay, write 10 things, write down 10 things that are in the room that you're in right now. And it's far easier. You can be like, oh, microphone, headphones, you know, computer, all those things, because you can see it right in front of you. And so it's a, but there's way more things in the world than there are in the room that I'm in right now. But yet it was much easier. It's much easier for me to figure out how to, you know, name 10 things of the things that I can see. And so, you know, that's where I find that like the constraint of the room starts to allow you to say, oh, oh, okay, I know what's here. Um, but when that blank paper is so big, it's a harder to know where to start. You know, that reminds me of Jeff Tweedy has this really cool songwriting tip. And his songwriting tip is to look around the room and just pick a thing. Mm-hmm. And write a song about that thing. And the beautiful thing about this is it unlocks the creative block. Because mm-hmm. like, if you're trying to make a perfect song about a perfect thing, you're just on this massive journey, to your point, thinking about all the things in the world and what I might pick. But if you just fixate on a thing anywhere near you and write a song about it, something deep inside you is going to come out. Mm-hmm. And once that song comes out, then you can change the subject of the song. Right. You can change words, but once it's out of your head, then you can start to adapt it. And I believe that's the power of prototypes, getting that yeah. initial thing out. And it comes back to your story around why you have that draw to your first toy, because it was so many lessons you learned because you're prototyping. Oh, so yeah. I always encourage people, yeah, those constraints. If you can just get something out quick without worrying about it, getting it perfect or focus in on one little thing and make something. Yeah, I so agree. And I think sometimes it's also giving people permission to say, it doesn't have to be the thing, right? Like I think, you know, it's pick this focus to just get some stuff out and get yourself going because it doesn't have to be the thing you, you know, the business you run for the rest of your life or even the thing that you end up prototyping or it's the prototype that becomes a better prototype. Like it just, just do it and get it started. Um, I think my engineering brain is like, oh, it's, you know, the uh, the laws of physics of an object in motion stays in motion and object at rest stays at rest. And it takes a lot of force to get that object from rest to in motion. It takes, you know, energy to make that happen. And I think that is so true with creativity and play and all the things that we talk about is that you've just got to get it in motion. And sometimes giving yourself those constraints and giving yourself those better opportunities to, you know, build energy with creativity and with prototypes or whatever it might be. Uh, helps that motion continue and and move a little bit faster. I love that point. And it also ties in with these programmatic offerings we've been talking about, which is that if that team is in motion and they're staying in motion, then they are able to make more progress. They're able to continue that versus, you know, if we do a thing 
and then it kind of slows down and stops. The getting it back into motion again is really difficult. Yeah, you have the opportunity to build momentum when you're in motion a little bit longer. Um, and that you're not having, like you said, those kind of stopping pieces every time to kind of build back that energy. And you, it takes so much more energy if you're moving from rest every single time. And so if we can, you know, work with an organization or a team for a longer period of time, it's that momentum building that really starts to be transformative down the road, um, which is very exciting. So let's peer into the future a little bit, you know, whether it's hybrid or VR or any of these elements that are starting to really take root in the world around us, or even just these programmatic offerings that we're talking about, how it might shift and create more impact. What kind of strikes you as what begins to take root and really flourishes as we kind of look into the future? Such a good question. I mean, I think like any new opportunity of whether it's a new technology or a new framework for doing something it goes back to it's a it's a new constraint or it's a it's a new you know we can even talk about it's like a new playground in a way to be able to say okay like how do we take what we've learned from you know this thing that we've done or this area or this medium that we've used um, and take what we learned into this new medium and this new playground and build something a little different that that makes sense for that but is still informed by the things that we we know and can and can bring to that new area to me, it's really exciting. It's new tools. It's it's new opportunities to play. It's you know new toys in, in some ways. Uh, or you know, I think especially the VR world is is really interesting to me in terms of like it really does feel like a playground sometimes um, when you enter into that. And it's like, oh, what can we do here, <laughs> right? Like, what's what's going to be kind of that next next future thing that's going to that you know delighted us in one place, but is going to delight us and, and excite us in a new one. Um, that's just, you know, new mediums is always, always fun to try out. That's a really good point. I have found in any of the experiments we've done, you know, like the stuff we did at Control Room and, um, you know, with Mural and Facebook, it just seemed so much more playful. Like I, mm. I was more inclined to play in that environment. I don't know what it was, you know, maybe the scenery, maybe the aesthetic or just feeling like I was near people in this mm. open place versus being in a conference room. Yeah. And I think even hearing you say that too, it's also like, what's really, what's really happening there that's different. And, and what made that feel so different is to me, you know, even just hearing you say that is it's new, like it's new, it's novel, which is one thing that's exciting, but it's also, you know, because it isn't, you know, there's, you're then missing that, that dreaded, it's the way we've always done it thing when there's not a way that we've always done it before. And so we enter into this new space and it's like, oh, nope, no one has done this in, in any way before. So there's not really that benchmark to, to say this is right or this is wrong or this is the way that it should be done when we're all exploring it for the first time. And so that that's the environments we try to build for play, but they're inherently, you know, they're in a, in a new technology or a new space, which is, is, makes it fun. You know, I think that's such a powerful point that should really be underscored this like play as the antidote to the statement, but this is the way we always do it. Mm -hmm. I love that. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, let's think about how we leave our listeners with a final thought. What should they be thinking about as we close out? Mm. I mean, I think even what we just said too, right? Like that's got my wheels turning for sure of how can play be used as a tool for that dreaded term, but also for growing your own individual creativity, your own individual, you know, ability to 
have that and build that playful posture in whatever, if it's a, a meeting or a collaboration or friendships, relationships, like how are you building play into your life throughout it? Um, and how does that, that bleed into your work as well? And then also how is it used as a tool for just kind of that, that transformation that can occur with teams? I think all of those things are just final thoughts that I've got, you know, turning in my head for sure. Excellent. Well, it's been a super pleasure chatting. I know we could go on and on and on. It's super exciting to talk about these things and how leaders and teams can transform and really learn to just work in a completely new way. So I'm excited to continue the conversation. And uh, it's been such a pleasure chatting today. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's, it's definitely been fun and I appreciate the opportunity to, to chat more about it. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. And if you want to know more, head over to our blog where I post weekly articles and resources about radical inclusion, team health, and working better. VoltageControl.com.